You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I bring back Tobias Carlisle. Tobias is the founder of the Acquires Multiple and the Acquires Funds, which manages Zig, the Acquires Fund, and Deep, the Round Hill Acquires Deep Value Fund. In this episode, we talk about his deep value and Acquires Multiple strategies. He explains why he thinks the current market conditions create a favorable setup for value investors going forward. Then we get into his deep value strategy, how long a mean reversion trade typically takes, and how it differs from a time horizon of a quality investor. He explains how an assessment of quality plays a role in a deep value strategy, how to use his screeners and find companies that are cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis, and much, much more. And with that, let's get right into this week's episode with Tobias Carlisle. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and today we bring back popular and fan favorite guest, Tobias Carlisle. Tobias, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Good to see you again. There's a lot we're going to talk about today on your mean reverting deep value strategy, but a lot has happened in the market since we last talked. So I just want to kind of get a gauge or get an assessment of where you think things are in the markets and the global economy right now. Yeah, it's always, it's a little bit of a fooled errand to sort of try to predict what the markets are going to do because they're almost definitionally unpredictable. Certainly over the short term, it's just noise. And the short term, I would say, is anything up to kind of 10 years is, is what I would regard as the short term at a market level. So, you know, I like these very long-term metrics like the Schiller PE, which adjusts for the business cycle and inflation adjusts the earnings. And then it just looks at these inflation-adjusted earnings against the index and that has been saying that we've been overvalued for a long time and it, you get the same answer whether you use, there's a Tobin's Q, which looks at the replacement value of assets versus the market value of those assets or Buffett's measure where he likes total market capitalization and he compares that to gross national product, which is all of the income any company resident in the States. And all of those metrics say that we're very overvalued. The reason for that is obviously that interest rates have been very low for a very long period of time. And when you lower interest rates, Buffett says it acts like gravity on assets. So when you lower them, the assets go up. When you raise them, assets go down. We're in this hiking cycle in the States. Central banks don't like hiking. Nobody likes hiking. The reason that they hike is because inflation is worse than hiking. Inflation sort of erodes purchasing power and it's an extremely regressive tax. It hits the poorest hardest because they're the ones, you know, that basket, the CPI basket makes up a greater portion of their income. So it's necessary to hike to stop the runaway inflation. And the runaway inflation is likely driven by all of the bailouts and all of the printing that we've done over the last few years. So that's a nasty backdrop. When I look back at other periods of time where we've had very expensive markets, rapidly rising interest rates, lots of inflation as a backdrop, which sort of pins those, makes that raising rates necessary, makes that ongoing. It looks like a 19, could be a 1950s type scenario, could be a 1970s type scenario in both of those. Equity just don't do well in those sort of markets. 
What that means in terms of near-term stock market performance is hard to predict. What it has meant in the past is that there have typically been pretty big crashes in these kinds of environments and then a persistent period of sort of low returns. And I suspect that that's what we've got. I've felt that way for a while and it hasn't happened yet. So, you could take that sort of historical view with a grain of salt and I know that there are many people who feel like we're the market topped out the end of 22, beginning of 23, and where this is mid-May, so we're nearly 18 months from the peak. If you look back a year, the stock market's now up a little bit from where it was a year ago. So, does that mean we've sort of bottomed and it's going to be a very mild kind of drawdown and it's just back to all-time highs from here? I think it's hard to see how that happens because earnings are likely to be lower for a little while here. Even from here, I think that earnings will go lower. And so we're talking for stock markets to get back to all time highs. We're talking about multiple expansion. That's likely driven by interest rates coming down. And so I think that's a difficult scenario to see. I think probably more likely is that, and if you listen to what Jay Powell says, interest rates are staying where they are or going up a little bit. Naturally, that will all be not true. The moment that the market cracks, they'll start cutting. But if you look historically, what happens when the market starts falling and central banks start cutting. It doesn't really do much in the short term. It's sort of, it seems to be more of a psychological impact that happens over time. I suspect we're sort of in the back end now of this drawdown. And that's typically when the worst of the drawdown occurs. So I've talked about this a lot, the 10-3 inversion. So there's a treasury yield curve so, you can look at the very short dated treasuries and that's the three-month treasury and then you have a 30-year which is the very back end and typically what happens is they're in backwardation which means that the each, as you go further away from today, each treasury yields a little bit more because there's more risk in inflation, there's things that can happen between now and 30 years away so that typically you get more yield for backdated treasuries and you get less yield for front-dated treasuries. When an inversion occurs, that's, you might hear these terms like contango, that's where the front end is higher than the back end and it means that people are fearful in the near term such that they don't want to hold these securities so they sell them off and the yield goes up. And the 10-3 inversion indicates that there's a, the three-month, so the near-dated treasury is higher than the 10-year treasury. The yield on the three-month is higher than the yield on the 10-year. There's some research by a gentleman by the name of Ken Harvey and he has shown that even though it's a very simple metric, it's quite good at predicting recession. So, he wrote his PhD in 1986. He looked at four examples before his PhD came out. It had the inversion preceded every single one of the recessions. And since his research is published in 1986, there have been four more examples and every single one of those inversions has preceded a recession. There have been no false positives. And so, what it seems to predict is some sort of deflationary event over the coming period. So, we're back into inversion. Now, we inverted October 25 last year. Inversion periods from the inversion to the declaration of the recession tends to be something in the order of six months at the shortest, 15 months at the longest, and 12 months on average. So, that would be April 25, October 25, January 25, 2024 for some sort of declaration of the recession. And then you can look at what has happened to stock markets in recessions, the drawdown tends to be twice as deep as it would otherwise be. So, the average drawdown absent a recession is about 20%. The average drawdown in a recession is about 40%. So, I 
all of that together, I don't know. I'm not predicting. I'm just saying that these are the conditions that exist. We've got a stock market that's been in drawdown for something like 17 and a half months coming up on 18 months where we have an inversion. And typically when we've had an inversion, we've had six to 15 months with 12 as the median. So I would say that we're now mid-May through to the likely October. I think probably there's a reasonable chance of something happening in that intervening period. Having said that, the conditions don't necessarily mean that they're going to occur. These big drawdowns are very rare events. It's very, very hard to predict them. So I think that for what's worth, it's worth being cautious through this period of time. I think there's a reasonable chance to get better prices sometime in the near future. At the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting this year, there was some discussion between Warren, Charlie, and a, a question from the audience about the future opportunities and potential for value investors. I was hoping you could paint some color around what was said, more of the context, and then I'm interested to hear your views on what you think the future of value investing looks like. Yeah, that's not a new thing from Charlie. He said that a number of times, and it's true that the more competition that there is for, you know, at one point it was Benjamin Graham wrote the sort of the first book that was like a scientific approach to value investment that came out in 1934. And then he taught Buffett and Buffett was the famously the only student who got an A plus in his class. And so there was a period of time where Buffett was buying these subliquidation companies that were way, way too cheap one times earnings and actually pretty good companies. And he got very, very good returns. And that seems to have sort of ended around 1969. And he's transitioned from Buffett Partners, which was his hedge fund, into Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway had a different sort of approach to the Buffett Partners approach because he was then trying to buy better businesses. You know, he famously transitioned into Amex and C's and Coca-Cola and, and now Apple. And so, these are much better businesses that it necessary to pay up for a little bit. So, valuations have certainly gone up and that has meant that the way that investors approach the market has had to, people have had to adapt. I think that opportunities will always exist because opportunities exist because people do silly things in the markets. And I don't think that we're getting smarter as a species. I don't think we're getting smarter as investors. I think that the markets are expensive and that means you have fewer opportunities. But you're also not under any obligation to swing at anything in the market. You can sit there and wait for your price. And there have been lots and lots of really silly prices. And I think that despite the fact that I was just saying before that I think the market's very overvalued, I do think the market's very overvalued. But I also think there are, we're sort of at this, the spread between the most overvalued companies, sorry, the spread between the, the market and the most undervalued companies is as wide as it has ever been. It's wider now than it was in 2000. It's wider now than it was in 2009 at the bottom. And both of those periods saw very, very good returns for value. The problem is that when people look at the companies that are in the very undervalued basket, they say, I don't want to own those companies because for one thing, it's a lot of energy. We don't know if the energy companies' earnings are sustainable. They tend to be quite cyclical. So that the value basket currently is filled up with companies that people don't want to own. But that's always the case. Definitionally, value is stuff that people don't want to own and it's too cheap relative to what it's earning. That's where the opportunities come from. So you have to be prepared to sort of ignore what everybody else says, buy these things when they're cheap, and then hold them, whatever happens. And I know you've got a few examples that we're going to discuss in a little bit, but 
that's one of the reasons that I'm quite quantitative and systematic in my approach, which means that I sort of tend to focus on financial statements rather than what economists or management or other investors or sell-side analysts or buy-side analysts or anybody has to say about these things. Because what they say about these companies is the reason why they're cheap. I already know all of the reasons why these things are cheap. The way that you invest, though, is you sort of have to put those opinions aside and look at what the financial statements actually say. And then it's the age-old problem that confronts any sort of science anywhere. We're trying to guess what the future looks like based on what the past looks like. And to the extent that the future doesn't follow the rules of the past, then I'm going to be wrong on these things. But if the future continues to look like the past, then some of these companies will get some attention again, the stock prices will go up, and they should perform. And so I think that the opportunity for value at the moment is extraordinarily good. The reason why it doesn't look so good value as a strategy is because these multiples relative to the rest of the market are so stretched. It's been going against value since sort of 2010. And I post these little charts on my Twitter feed all the time saying, just updating, saying the spread is unbelievably, the spread is wider again. When you've got that sort of headwind all the time as an investor, the returns are going to be flat. But at some point, flat or down, at some point, that spread starts closing. And when that spread closes, then the tailwind turns in, sort of the headwind turns into a tailwind. And I think you'll see a lot of value outperformance. So I'm incredibly optimistic. I've never seen an opportunity set like this in my lifetime relative to the rest of the market. And I think that if you look at what's happened in the past, we've seen something comparable to this. Early 2000 would be comparable. Value did very well. The rest of the market was flat and it took a decade for that to sort of work its way out to the point that from 2000 to 2015, by 2015, the spread was very, very tight. When the spread is very tight, you want to be in the better companies. There's no advantage. There's no discount to being in the the less good companies. It's harder to be a handicapper, which is sort of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to buy the best company in the market. I'm trying to buy the best opportunity, which is a combination of prospects of the company plus the price that you're getting for those. And I think that that second part is the bit that folks sort of forgot a little bit over the last few years. It's not, you're just not trying to buy the best company. You're trying to buy the best return, which may be the second best company, but at a really good price. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. 
Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. How do you see the opportunities with deep value or your mean reversion strategy? One of the reasons that I am excited about the prospects of a crash, I mean, I hate to say that because I know that it's, they're unpleasant periods of time to go through, but for my strategy, it's an early cycle strategy. Value is an early cycle strategy. Deep value is an early cycle strategy. When the crash comes, there's no high, there's this sort of, there's this idea, there's this received wisdom that value does better through a crash. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think that that comes from people looking either at 2000 where value didn't draw down as much, although in 2009 it certainly did draw down roughly in line with the rest of the market. Or it comes from slicing, like looking at a year. So, looking at January to January 1, one year to December 31 in the same year and then comparing that, those periods just because value tends to recover first. So, it gets the big bounce before the rest of the market bounces. And then it would appear that it hasn't drawn down as much or it's up slightly over that period. I think that we will draw down in line with the rest of the market, but then we'll come out of the bottom sort of likely leading the first value, deep value just tends to be first out of the gate. It tends to be the thing that's bought first. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I, I'm not worried about a crash so much and I'd welcome it. It's the, that's what creates the opportunities and that will be what creates the outperformance for value on the other side. And if you look at markets around the world that have a kind of similar setup to the one in the States and in a lot of the developed markets around the world, Japan is the obvious example where Quantitative easing is a term that was invented in Japan. They had an extremely expensive stock market in the early 1990s, and that stock market still hasn't recovered something 30-something years later. They had very low interest rates. They've never sort of put their interest rates up, and I suspect the states will drop their interest rates back down. Again, government is a huge portion of the economy. Nothing has really worked in Japan except for value. The simplest price ratios, price to earnings, price to sales, price to book, have all been quite good. Those mean reversion strategies do work in a market that goes sideways because you can buy these things when they get too cheap and they rise to average valuation. 
you rebalance the portfolio back into things that are too cheap and that ratchets the portfolio up and that works. It doesn't matter if the market sort of goes sideways as long as you're able to buy things that are too cheap and sell them when they get back to fair value. So, I'm incredibly optimistic and excited about the prospects for deep value in particular, even though I think that it's highly likely that the indexes are going to struggle for probably 10 years. Last time you were on, you talked about how Meta, for people who don't know, is previously Facebook, was on your screener and it looked very cheap on your acquirer's multiple. And I checked before our conversation, it's not on your screener anymore because it's gone up almost 100%, I'm thinking, since we talked. So I'm guessing that's probably why it's, it's not on the screener anymore. And I want to use this company as an example of how we can think of using this strategy in your screener. Is this an example of a company that was cheap on your acquirer's multiple metric and it was in your screener for that reason? And now since it's appreciated so much in price, it's no longer cheap on that metric anymore? Right. So that's exactly what's happened. I think about this time last year, Meta came in and I think it was like $150, something like that. It was very, very unpopular at $150 because it had been $300. I think it had been north of $300. And so it was at least down 50% from there. At that point, it was one of the cheapest 10% of stocks in the large cap, sort of in the Russell 1000, which seems crazy because it's, if you looked at the underlying business, they're still adding users all the time. They're generating more revenue all the time. There's very little hard assets in that business to generate extraordinary returns. And it all turns into cash flow that basically falls to the bottom line. The concerns were Zuck has this fixation on the metaverse and he was investing a huge amount of money into this metaverse idea. And there was a risk that that was going to be completely wasted. I think even if all of that money is completely wasted, it's still a very, very cheap company. They could have paid that capital out as a dividend or used it to buy back stock. It's the same effect as it happens. I don't think it's wasted anyway. If you at the time, I was running screens where I just to look at different things that were happening. So, one of the things that I like to look at is just how much is a company investing relative to its depreciation and amortization. So, what does its capex look like relative to its depreciation? There are only a handful of businesses that really invest a great deal more than their capex. Now, often the question is to what extent is capex growth capex and to what extent is it maintenance capex? So, growth capex hopefully leads to growth. Maintenance capex obviously is just to continue earning what you're currently earning. Facebook was a standout on growth capex investment because it vastly exceeded its depreciation and amortization. Now, I don't know to what extent. Some of it is maintenance, some of it is capex, and I can't really tease it out. But if your capex vastly exceeds your depreciation and amortization, it's likely that a lot of it is growth capex. They were still earning a huge amount on the top line and they're reinvesting a lot. I happen to like both of those two things provided that the capex, the growth capex actually leads to growth, which it seems to be in Facebook's instance. So, it's a good example of just ignoring what everybody else says. As it happens, Meta fell from 150 and it bottomed, I think, $90 or maybe $88 or something like that. It was absolutely friendless at that point. And I think it was one of those stocks that people felt like they had been justified not buying at $150 because it fell to $90. We bought it at, I think, $156 might have been the first price that we paid. And we were still buying we rebalance on a quarterly basis. And when a position goes down, we just rebalance it back to equal weight if it's still in our universe, things that we want to own. And I think we bought it two or three more times. We increased the size of the position as that went down. 
And then sub $90, it finally sort of found its bottom and it started bouncing again. I don't know where it is today, but I think it's north of $200. So for us, it worked out really well. And it was just a good example of ignore what everybody else says, focus on the financial statements and the positions sort of work themselves out. It was an easy decision for me because the financials were so good. And then on top of that, I'd say Zuckerberg's a proven investor. He's the owner operator of that business. It's a mind control machine. And he's a Harvard sociopath you know, who, who was going to use it to make a lot of money. So I felt pretty good about the bet, even though it was going against me. I felt like all I could see was multiples coming in, which you know that's par for the course for being a deep value guy. That's what my entire book looks like. Multiples are coming in all the time. But the underlying businesses are still pretty good. And I think that we're about to go into a period where the multiples won't come in as much. We'll go into a period where multiples start expanding, which is traditionally what happens. The big difference between, so if you take two portfolios and you think about buying, you might call them. So a quality investor might look for something that is growing very rapidly and they'll find that those growth rates largely sustain but the multiples tend to come in just as a broad statement across that cohort on all of the testing that I have seen, that tends to be what happens. So you're guessing that it'll grow faster than the multiples will contract because all businesses have this mean reversion over time where they growth slows, the profitability reduces somewhat and the returns on invested capital mean revert down. The value portfolios, on the other hand, have the opposite effect. The growth tends to go from negative to slightly positive and the multiples tend to expand and then all of the metrics start looking better. The returns on invested capital start improving. Everything starts improving and that, that is mean reversion. And when people see that through successive reports, that tends to be why the multiple expands, the business starts growing. And that's where I try to be. Historically, the research shows that that tends to be the better place to make your bet. It's much more forgiving at that point. You can be wrong on a few things and still as a portfolio do pretty well. So, I think that the last few years have been anomalous for value. Historically, it's done very well, despite what Charlie says. I see all of the signs of mean reversion still being there. It's just that multiples have been running against us. And at some point, they'll go the other way. And when that happens, everybody will be a deep value investor again. In Meta's case, the mean reversion happened quite quick, you could argue. And you know it was in your screener and then it was out. So how long do typical mean reversion trades last? The research seems to show that undervaluation leads to excess returns going out to about five years, but the returns are asymptotic, which means that the bulk of the returns in the first year, then there's a smaller amount in the second year, less in the third year, less again in the fourth year, less again in the fifth year, and by the sixth year, you should expect to get about a market return. The challenge for hold forever investors is that they have to find something that is predictive beyond five years. And as far as I'm aware, there's nothing. High returns on invested capital, what we all want to hold, it's not necessarily what you want to buy, because when you buy them, they tend to mean revert down. So you're trying to buy things where they'll be mean reverting up, which is what you find in value. So five years, but the bulk of it is in the first year. The way that I do it, I'm not so Buffett characterizes himself as wonderful companies at fair prices, and he seems to have been very, very good at selecting those things that do continue to grow and compound beyond the short term. And I think really what he's achieved is he buys these great businesses when they're at deep value prices, and then he gets that mean reversion in the first few years. So you think about his Apple position where 
it was one of the cheapest 10% of the market when he bought it again. So, I've, I've written about Apple a few times because it's a funny sort of stock that was quite cyclical for a while. It doesn't seem to be so cyclical anymore. The price more than the actual underlying, but they had this iPhone replacement cycle that sort of happened every two or three years. So, I read about it in 2013. It was one of the cheapest stocks in the market. It was also a very, very good stock at the time. And then, you know, it did quite well over that next three years, but then it went back into another one of its sort of three-year annual sort of reversion to value territory. And it was, again, cheapest 10% of stocks. And that was when Einhorn and Icon took a position. Einhorn said they should turn their cash into create this security called an IPREF, which would have paid out some money. And it's just a financial engineering way of getting some credit for the additional earning and the money that you have in the business. Icon was sort of much more direct. He said, just go and buy back a whole lot of stock, which they ultimately did. They undertook the biggest buyback that the market had ever seen at that point. And they did it as quickly as they possibly could. They were earning so much cash when they completed it, they had a huge cash pile again. It got cheap again in about 2019, for whatever reason. Cheapest 10% of stocks again. Buffett bought a giant position. He paid $40 billion, or $36 billion, I think. And it had sort of gone up three times about 18 months later. It's now like a five-bagger or something crazy for him on a gigantic investment like that. What he does, though, is he buys these things that have that deep value mean reversion in them. So, he's going to get that two or three X over a short period of time over the next three to five years. But then beyond that, it's still a very good business. It has a very good ecosystem. It's earning higher returns on invested capital and growing and throwing off cash, returning cash all the time. They've just announced another $90 billion buyback, which I think is a nice illustration of the difference between Buffett's approach and Icahn's approach. Icahn sort of buys a big position from the outside and screams at them until they do a buyback. Buffett buys a big position and then from the inside clearly has the same conversation, but doesn't sort of attract as much ill feeling perhaps. And they have another $90 billion buyback. So, I think It's a good illustration of getting a little bit of both, getting the mean reversion of the deep value companies and also getting the subsequent growth. I think that it's much, much more difficult to do it than it looks from the outside. It's not just a matter of, you know, every quality investor finds a moat in every single business that they look at that's earning high returns in invested capital. But if you look at it as a cohort, they really, there are many more high returns in invested capital than there are moats because most things have a business cycle or a business life cycle even where. So, the business cycle is when times are good, they earn a lot. When times are bad, they don't earn much. The business life cycle is they go through this period of very high growth and then they go through a period of very high profitability and lower growth. And it's that point where it transitions over that they get slightly lower multiples. And that tends to be, I think, where Buffett buys them, where they turn into cash cows and they're returning a lot of capital to him. So, you know, famously, he's bought Oxy recently which is an energy company. And the reason he seems to have been attracted to it, and he's explicit about this because he took a slide from Oxy's presentation and he put it in his own Berkshire presentation. And the slide showed how much capital they were returning to investors because he doesn't want them reinvesting in. There'll be an energy cycle here probably that we've underinvested in energy for a long time. It's becoming increasingly difficult to extract energy anyway, to extract oil. We're doing deep offshore drilling for oil now. It's heroic sort of what we're doing now to get all this, the shale, which is very short term. So, companies that have access to these deposits are likely to over-earn probably for a period of time here. The risk though is that you have a management team and this, is, this will undoubtedly happen across the whole industry. They'll take all of those earnings and they'll reinvest it in the chase for more earnings down the road. When they reinvest it, they'll 
overpay. That's just what happens through a cycle. So he's taken that slide that says this is how much they're going to return and then he's made that public and he's just told everybody what good friends he's with the CEO and they've had this conversation. So he's really putting a huge amount of pressure on them not to do that, not to reinvest. He's asking them just to return that capital to him so he can redeploy it and other things. So the challenge for quality investors is finding those things that really do continue to earn beyond that. I think it's very, very hard to do, much, much harder than most people appreciate. The way that I sort of get around that is I'm trying to buy. I think from the deep value pool, there will be companies that turn into compounds. It's kind of hard to believe, but I've been doing this for long enough now that I've seen it happen over and over again. They're cheap because people don't think they're very good businesses. But at some point, they transition. Either they figure it out or the industry matures or whatever happens or the business gets access to some asset that they haven't had previously and they start over-earning. I think that we're likely to see some of those businesses through a normal business cycle over-earn. I hope that I earn some of them. But I tend to be a buy and sell. When I get that initial year or so return, and I think Meta is another very good example of that where we were buying it about this time last year. We bought it a lot as it went down. We've trimmed since it's gone back up. And as you point out, it's now left the screen. And so it's probably likely that it leaves the portfolios in, in due course here. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. When it comes to deep value and your screener and the acquirer's multiple, what are other things you look for in terms of quality for companies you're going to buy that fit your, your valuation criteria that I just mentioned? Yeah, I like to see businesses that have this long period of operation where they have, it's a real business. They've been earning money historically. They've gone through a rough patch. Like energy is a great example. Energy businesses, when they get going, they will look like software as a service. They'll have massive returns on invested capital. They'll grow really quickly. They'll generate a whole lot of free cash flow. People avoid them because the, the last 10 years look terrible because they overinvested for the 10 years before that. And a lot of that went into the shale that reduced returns. There's also a, an ESG push. So they've been starved of investment. At some point, that will turn around. I don't know when. I can't. The problem with value is that it's a terrible timing tool. It's not good at all at predicting when any of these things will happen. All you can say is that something is undervalued and that if it continues to work, then if the underlying business continues to work, then it'll be fine. So if you think about the things that you would, I think like a business owner, I run a small business, I think like a business owner. The things that I know that the business needs are, for one thing, you need cash flow. Accounting earnings are great, but businesses live or die on cash flow. So I always like to see lots of cash coming in the front door. Then I like to see what management does with that cash flow. Are they redeploying it into good projects? Are they using it to buy back undervalued stock? Are they using it for overpriced acquisitions? Are they using it to pay themselves too much? All of those things tell you management's attitude towards shareholders, and that's important because they get first look at the cash flows. And to the extent that they waste them, it's not going to translate into value for shareholders. But to the extent that they use that undervaluation to buy back stocks, it can really turbocharge returns for investors. And you can find many examples of companies in the market where the underlying business is shrinking. The underlying business is going backwards, like O'Reilly or AutoZone or many of those businesses are in that sort of HPQ, which is the Hewlett-Packard, you know, the printer business, like the, not enterprise, not the sexy part of the business, not the services, but the printer business where I've got a printer. I think I paid 300 bucks for it about three years ago. The only stuff I print out is stuff for the kids to color in. It's hardly used for business at all. Everything's done in PDF. Now, I know that it's a dying business, but they've been so good at buying back stock. The stock has done very well. And it's a stock that I have owned, but I don't currently own. And there are lots of companies like that. So I like big fat buybacks of undervalued stock where they're generating lots of cash flow because over long periods of time, that will lead to very good performance. And it tells you what sort of management team you're dealing with. You've got a management team that is thinking like an owner, and that's really the key. That's why, you know, 
Zuckerberg, for all of my joking criticism of Zuckerberg, he is a good businessman and he does run that thing for the shareholders for the most part. So, they've been very good at buying back stock when it was cheap. He's figured out at some point here that the metaverse probably isn't the direction that everybody's going. It sounds like AI now is the... If he'd said AI 18 months ago, they probably would have been fine. But instead, he said the metaverse. Now, AI is very, very popular. They'll probably say AI a lot now coming up. But the, the, the point is that whatever happens, they're doing the right thing because they're buying back stock. They're running that business pretty well. They're generating lots of free cash flow. They're doing the right things with it. So, that's the way that I think about it. Just what would I do? What would a business person do if they're in there looking after the shareholders? And to the extent that they're doing those things, then I think that that makes them much better bets than otherwise. How important is the portion of returns in the deep value strategy of buyback yields, companies buying back shares, whether they buy it at a high price, a low price, and also from the dividend yield? How, how important is that? Or how much of a, a piece of deep value investing is that? I think in aggregate, share buybacks are terrible for investors because share buybacks tend to be done at... There are many more examples of companies that are overvalued and they see some weakness in their share price and they're just used to these share prices going up over time. And they think that to sort of prop up the share price, what they will do is conduct a buyback at a very high level. And you can see there are all these calls for... If you follow Tesla at all, you know, Tesla's now free cash flow positive. I still... I think... Tesla's been something that's defied my expectations. So I should be very careful when I'm commenting on Tesla because I'm, I know a little bit, but not a lot. But let, just if everybody will just excuse me while I give my, my two cents out of it. Tesla somehow made the leap from it wasn't making very much money to sort of generating free cash flow. So it seems it's hard to tell as financial statements are very difficult to pass for me. But it seems that it's generating free cash flow. Just because the stock prices come back a little bit, there are all these calls for them to use that free cash flow to buy back stock which I think would be an absolute disaster for them. They're much better off reinvesting in the business to the extent they have any real free cash flow. It's still too expensive to do buybacks, but this is what every other management team does. They do these buybacks at too high a level and they tear up value when they do that. You'd much rather have the cash than have them buying back stock. If the stock is very undervalued though, it has a different effect. The cash buys more value it's worth more than a dollar. A dollar of cash is worth more than a dollar of value in a buyback because you can buy these things back undervalued and it concentrates the value of the business. The business doesn't shrink. The cash, which wasn't being used anyway, is used to shrink down the size of the company that owns the business. And so the shareholders who remain get own a bigger portion of the business. And if they do that over a period of time in series, and you can find there are lots of companies that are very good at buying back shares and they've shrunk their share counts by enormous amounts. Assured guarantee is a great one. AGO is the ticker. You can look at the shares outstanding coming in all the time on that business. And they publish in their reports what they think their adjusted book value is because it's an insurer. They publish adjusted book value, which is a pretty good proxy for what the actual thing is worth. And they're trading at a big discount and buying back stock. That's what, something that should work out over a long period of time. I don't hold AGO, by the way. I just use it as an example. It's something that I have owned in the past and watch. Buybacks are not so much. You're right in the sense that they're short term in the sense that it doesn't really do anything for the ongoing business to do that. They, some of the cash goes out the door. But for shareholders, it tells you something about the management team and it actually does improve the value of the shares that you currently hold. So, for those two reasons, I'm a big fan of buybacks done at undervaluation. And because we're, we're using our screen, screens are imperfect. My screen is particularly simple because it's only one metric, it's EVE, but, and then I screen out some of the things that I think are frauds or earnings manipulators and so on. But 
the what remains is a very broad swathe of the market. And so it might do, it might help to do some additional work in there looking for cash flow and other things like that. But we've got this thesis for the companies that are in that screen that they are undervalued. And I love to see it confirmed by a management team who says, yeah, we think this is undervalued too. We're announcing a material buyback. We're going to use genuine free cash flow or cash that we have sitting around that's not being used in the business to buy back stock and shrink it down. It tells me the management agrees that it's undervalued. It tells me that they have the free cash flow to do something about that or they have the cash sitting there. And it tells me that they're thinking about the other shareholders. And those are three very good things. If you only screen on share buybacks or total shareholder yield, which is the same sort of idea, and you just buy the best, the ones that have the highest yield, so the biggest buybacks relative to the size of the business, that strategy will outperform the market. So I like it. In addition to my own sort of undervaluation, the two together are very powerful. So I, I like it a lot as a strategy. It's supported empirically and I think it's supported intuitively. I believe I heard in a, a previous interview you've done, it might have even been with us, that you exclude heavily shorted companies. Is that, that correct? I do. Shorts are smart. Shorts are very good at ferreting out things that might not be obvious to long-only investors like me. Sometimes there are things in the business that aren't obvious from the financial statements. And I think short interest is a really great way of finding those things out. So it's supported empirically. There's lots of research on this and I have conducted my own research. Heavily shorted stocks just don't do very well. They tend to underperform the market. That doesn't mean you want to be short those stocks because heavily shorted stocks have a lot of competition for shorts. The borrow is very expensive. You can be short squeezed. You don't want a lot of people in there agreeing with you. When I used to short, I used to screen out from my short screen also the most heavily shorted stocks for that exact reason because I don't want to be, you know, one of the things I think as an investor, the way that you get good returns is you buy things that people aren't paying attention to. It's too boring. It hasn't done anything for a long period of time. It's too scary. It's in a business that nobody wants to be associated with. You look silly if you buy it. Those are all things that are great. It also works on the short side. They get crowded. You don't want to be in a crowded short, but you don't want to be long something that's a crowded short either because the shorts are probably right. So I just use it as a sort of, it's my market gauge of, are there things out there that silly longs that for whatever reason, they pass the valuation filter and the buyback filter, but there are some smart shorts out there who've figured something out about this business that I can't see from the outside. And so I just use their skill that, you know, they're actually putting, it's not just an opinion, they're putting their money down to short these things, like they have some skin in the game. So I think it's a very good metric and I, I use it to avoid landmines that should have been obvious. Having said that, you know, it's very rare that short interest excludes something from the kind of companies that I'm buying because the kind of companies that I'm buying tend to have cash on the balance sheet, very free cash flow, generative and conducting a buyback rather. That's not a company that you want to be short for the most part. And they're not, they just tend to be different universes. But I do these things because, and I include in that I do, so I use these statistical measures of earnings manipulation, statistical measures of financial distress statistical measures of fraud. And you find that they all tend to be coalesced together. You don't need to go and do any earnings manipulation if you're not in financial distress. If you're doing really well, there's no need to manipulate the earnings. There's no need to commit fraud. It's the financial distress that drives them to do desperate things. And so, when all of those things are together, and I include the short interest in there just in case for whatever reason, it just misses all of those other screens. But there's something in there that you should know about that somebody else has figured out and they've put money down and bet on it. That's a good thing just to 
just to avoid it until the short interest drains away. Maybe it's a short-term issue. It'll come back into the screen eventually. Maybe it's fatal, and then you'll have just avoided a donut. But yeah, I think it's a good metric. So what's an alarming percentage where you might be worried or it would cause red flags if you see this amount of short interest? What, what percentage is that for you? I actually don't know the answer to that because the way I do it is I just exclude the most heavily shorted stocks in the market. So I think I only exclude like the 1% that are most heavily shorted, which in my bigger universe, which is the 1,000, 1% is 100 stocks. And in my 2,000 stock universe, 1% is 200 stocks. So it's whatever all of the shorts have basically decided is, is most shortable. And you know, I ran the Zig when it first came out was long short. And so I had a short screen in there. And the names that were most heavily shorted that didn't make it into my short screen. I don't really know what they were either, but shorts are always present in every single stock that you own. It'll be 5, 10, 15, and that's sort of meaningless. It's when it gets up to, but I don't know, it, it varies a little bit because the conditions for shorting are a little bit cyclical too sometimes. And we're probably going to go into a period now where it's going to become very difficult to short. You know, there's some political unease with the shorts in the banks because banking is a confidence game, really. And I mean that in both senses of the word. Banking, regional banks have got some problems because office is so beaten up post-COVID. Office occupancy rates are still at like 50% where they were post-COVID. It's going to take a long time for that to work its way out. But there are many buildings that can't pay their interest. And all of that debt is held by regional banks. The big increase in rates has meant that a lot of those books are underwater. I have a list of those banks and it started with Signature, Silicon Valley, First Republic. There's others in there like PacWest, Ally, all of these things. And I've just watched them go down that list and each one of them, you know, it started with the most egregious examples and uh, as each one topples and the next one sort of comes into the crosshairs. And so the regulators are, well, that's, that's because, you know, the shorts are kind of causing this. It's not the shorts at all, but well, as soon as there's some political will to stop the shorts, then the short interest metric is going to not be as useful as it was before. So we saw this in 2008, 2009, they banned shorting. They'll do it again when this market gets crazy. The day that they banned shorting will be one of, who knows what could happen in the market, that they could be up or down 10% easily because that might be a signal that we're in some real trouble and it might also be a signal that people are going to be forced to cover. It's coming. We're not there yet, but I, that's why short interest as an absolute metric, I don't really know and I don't really look at it. I just try to exclude the ones that are most heavily shorted, knowing that there will be periods of time like we're about to go into where the metric might not be as useful as it has in the past. How do you think about with your investments, either potential ones or ones you currently own, how do you think about insiders selling? Are you not too concerned with it because maybe it's just a personal thing? Maybe they need some money to buy a house or pay for their college fund for their kids or whatever the situation is. So it's not too big of a deal or is it sometimes alarming? Like what are those situations where it might be alarming? Most executives are sellers most of the time. So it's hard to tease out like what is selling because something bad is going to happen and what is selling because they've had a little bit of a windfall because they've had restricted stock units or options or something else and they're just taking the cash. Well, when they get options, the options have a strike and you still have to pay the strike. And so not everybody has those large amounts of cash lying around to pay the strike. So they tend to be sellers just so they can pay the strike on the, on the options. Selling is a very tough one to draw any information from for the reasons that you point out that 
they sell for lots of reasons. You want to buy a house, you want to buy a car, you want to pay the strike. Better information is when they're buying because they only buy for one reason and that's because they think it's undervalued and really that's – and you have to be careful too with those because it's hard to separate out which ones are just options being converted and which ones are actually these guys putting their hands in their pocket to buy some stock. I don't use it as a metric. I like that, you know, if I was thinking about an individual stock that I really wanted to size up big into outside of my screens, if, and I don't hold anything outside of my funds, but if I was thinking about buying one single thing, so if I, I wanted to buy like a Berkshire as like a big holding of mine or something like that, I would then go and look at what insiders are doing. And I think that you're looking for, say, you know, Moderna, you can go and have a look at the selling in Moderna. Those guys knew that what they had was a short-term chance to sell every single share that they had. You know, Moderna was one of the producers of the vaccines. It's clearly that was only going to be a short-term thing. Any of those businesses that were beneficiaries of COVID, they were just flooding that all of the stock that they held. It was going out the door. It was a fire sale for all of those things. So, you could go and look at the selling in those. That would give me pause if I saw every single executive selling every single share that they possibly had. But I think for the most part, executives are not great at understanding the value of their own businesses. Funnily enough, I know that which is why they buy back stock at too high a price, which is why they sell stock all the time. It's a rare executive, really, who understands the value of the business. And they tend to already be the owner-operator, the main person there, the entrepreneur, the founder, or they're a very good investor in their own right. So, Buffett would be that example. He's a, and other guys like that. There are other owner-operator investor-type guys out there. And so, I watch what they do. Most of the others, I think it's, it's largely noise. As we wrap up the show today, before I let you go, tell the audience where you want them to go online to find you, get your books, your information, your content. Where should they go? I have a website, acquirersmultiple.com, and that has links to the books. It has the screener, and I think it has a link to my Twitter account, but my Twitter account is greenbacked. It's G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D, which is a funny spelling. I have some books. If you search my name in Amazon, you can also find the books in Amazon. And I manage a fund called Acquirers Funds. Sorry, I manage a firm called Acquirers Funds and it has an Acquirers Fund, which the ticker is ZIG, that's mid cap, large cap, deep value in the States. And I have another one, deep, which is small and micro, deep value in the States. I think that the opportunity in both of those is unusually good right now because we've seen a few years of weakness and the valuations are incredibly compressed in that portion of the market. I think it would probably there's going to be some more volatility before that gets resolved. But I think that the next three to five years are unusually good for US deep value. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to all your resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. Just swipe up in your favorite podcast player. You can click the links in the show notes below, or you can go to theinvestorspodcast.com. Find all the links there as well. Tobias, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.